we're going to jump back into Colossians. We've been preaching through that on Sunday. Now here we are on Wednesday. We'll try to finish chapter 2 tonight. So Colossians chapter 2 is where you need to be. Tonight we're going to talk about warnings, helpful warnings. Um, life so full of all kinds of warnings. Uh, we see them all around. Some of them seem, I personally think, more like common sense than a warning. I mean, for example, like bleach has a little warning on it that says, keep out of reach of children. I just feel like that's kind of an obvious one. Or toilet bowl cleaner. It says, don't drink it. Like, I just feel like we should know that. It should just be common sense. And even though they are wildly entertaining, plastic bags are just not suitable toys for babies. Like, I feel like we should also know that one as well, although they are entertaining. But anyway, warnings all around us. This one kind of seems like a little unnecessary. This next picture kind of makes you feel sad that we can't figure this out on our own. But coffee is hot. Like, I just feel like we should be able to get there. Uh, it kind of reminds me of like when you go to a restaurant and like you order like fajitas and you're excited and the waiter or waitress comes and it's like sizzling. It's clear that it's really hot. And they're like, hey, the plate's hot, so don't touch it. You're like, cool, thanks for the warning. Uh, you know, I'm, I appreciate that warning. I also appreciate delicious fajitas, by the way. I think those are just really good. Uh, some warnings, helpful. Some warnings, common sense. Some warnings, a little bit better. Like a dog, when he like sh- growls at you or like shows you his teeth, he's just trying to let you know, hey man, what you're doing, I'm not cool with. You just need to back it up a little bit. I appreciate that warning because I want to Like, keep all my fingers and stuff. So thank you, doggy, for the warning. Other warnings that are helpful. uh, The gaslight warning when it comes on in your car. Stinks to run out of gas. And it's just trying to let you know, hey, friend, in the next few minutes or miles, you should stop and, and get some fuel for your car. And that may seem inconvenient, but much, much worse to run out of gas Just ask Justin if you want to know what that feels like. Maybe that happened to him this week. Maybe not. I can neither confirm nor deny. This next warning is one that no one ever wants to see. It's where we started with that picture of the phone about to die. Your iPhone flashes that red and you say, Lord in heaven, help me. This cannot... This is my life source. I need this, especially when there's no like charger in sight. Warnings all over, some obvious, some a little more helpful. Some warnings are scary. Some warnings a little more serious. When I was in junior high, I lived in a place where we got warnings from time to time about the weather. Warnings of dangers that you know not of. Uh, Our ground didn't shake like it does here. Our earth wasn't constantly engulfed in flame like it is here. Uh, We had tornadoes. 
Yeah, tornadoes. And from time to time, when the weather was just right, the sirens would sound and they were letting you know, like, hey, dude, your life's in danger. You need to find some shelter. Those tornadoes were capable of forming and they were dangerous and deadly. They do what tornadoes do. They just wipe stuff out. And more than a few times, I saw a neighborhood just gone or a house just lifted off its foundation where that house is. I don't know. Somebody got a free house out of the deal. But tornadoes were dangerous. Those warnings were were helpful to hear. You needed to know this is serious. I need to pay attention to this warning. When that siren lit and you heard it, you knew this isn't a joke. Like I need to find shelter pretty fast. Tornado warning is far more important than, you know, the warning about your coffee being hot or not to touch that sizzling plate in front of you. Christian life comes with tornado warnings as well. Serious warnings like that. Like these are really important. These warnings are not to just be like, meh, maybe I'll get gas, maybe I won't. These warnings are serious. And tonight, our text about a warning that I think attacks every believer, uh, something that every believer has to face and needs to deal with and needs to know about, uh, warnings against uh, attacks that steal joy and peace, attacks that can steal our happiness, that can affect our assurance, uh, attacks that honestly can stifle our spiritual growth, attacks that put us in a place where it's kind of having the the opposite effect that we want it to have, A, a warning against attacks that rob you of what it really is to live in the fullness of Christ. It's a warning against trying to please God or grow in your faith in ways that God doesn't tell us to do. This warning, it's, it's again, way more significant than a, a low battery warning. This is tornado warning level. Uh, when Christians try to live by these extra rules or man-made ideas, they actually cut themselves off from the source of their growth. We'll see that tonight. They cut themselves off from God. Our big idea is this. It's, it's a warning to Christians Follow Christ according to his word. This is a warning for Christians. You need to follow Christ according to his word. In other words, Christians don't live by superstitions. Christians don't live by rituals. We don't decide how to live by somebody's vision or a voice that someone hears. We don't do that to try to have a better relationship with God. God gives us his word. And when we start to live our lives by something other than scripture, we're actually cutting ourselves off from the source of growth. We're going to be distracted. We're going to be distanced from God's powerful work in our life. Okay, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, it says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. 
These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on, big word alert, asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a a growth that's from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and human teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What in the world is all this about? Let me help. Paul just explained right before this section in chapter two, he really just kind of tried to highlight what these false teachers that were messing with the believers here in this little town of Colossae, He just went after them and tried to show what they were all about. Verse 8 of chapter 2, Paul says, That stuff, that false teaching, it's empty and deceptive. It's man-made. And the worst of it, it's not according to Christ. It has nothing to do with Christ and his word. It's all about man. Now here in chapter 2, Paul kind of pinpoints the practices of these false teachers. And I'll I'll say it, it's difficult to know exactly what in the world Paul's talking about. Guys much smarter than me who know Greek and Hebrew much more than I do are all scratching their heads. We're not really sure what exactly Paul means. But I know this, the Colossians do. They know exactly what Paul's talking about here. I'm confident that they know what he means And I'm confident that we can learn from this. We can understand that these rituals and visions and practices, these are not how Christians live their life. These are not things that Christians say, oh, this is what God wants me to do. This is something that I'm supposed to be doing. That's not what's here. We are to be devoted to Christ Again, we should follow him according to his word. So just going to help you see this in these two sections tonight, two thoughts for us tonight to understand better how to follow Christ, to not be distracted, to to not be caught up in stuff that isn't for Christians, okay? Stuff that is going to keep us from growing in our faith and keep us growing from the way that God wants us to. So the first warning is this, a warning against legalism. Big word, junior high, it's too big of a word. So I try to help you understand what, what I mean by legalism. It's there in parentheses. Emphasizing man's rules, not God's rules. Okay, that's what I mean by legalism. And that's what Paul's gonna talk about here. It's a warning against following stuff that men say you should do while completely ignoring what God's word says you should do. Verse 16, 
Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul is warning against like food stuff and celebration festival stuff. What is that? Well, we kind of need some Old Testament knowledge to really understand what it is that Paul's talking about because it doesn't mean a lot to us. We're like, what? Should I not be on this keto diet? I mean, I, I don't really like my mom's diet plan for our family. I'd rather just eat whatever. Is, oh, cool. Here's a verse that I can use against her. That's not this. Okay, that isn't what this is. Paul's pointing to some Old Testament Jewish customs and regulations that God gave for his people. They were really helpful and and really specific. So it kind of seems like the false teachers are trying to convince these believers here in Colossae that they'd be better off, that they would actually be closer to God, that they would grow in their relationship with God, and they'd be more spiritually full if they added some stuff to the gospel, if they kind of went back to the Old Testament way of living. Let's go back and, and do that stuff that God said. If it was good then, it must be good now. Let's, let's go back and really try to live pleasing to God. Dietary laws and feasts and celebrations. God gave his people that for a specific reason. The food thing. Some stuff he said was clean. Some stuff he said was unclean. And the whole point was for them to learn about purity. God wanted his people to start to think about some things are are pure and some things are not. And I need to just start to wrestle with this. That's what God was doing with him. That's a a big picture of that, but that's what God was doing there. And, And then the festivals and the celebrations and the Sabbaths and the new moon, all that stuff too, that had a point. God was doing stuff with that. He wanted his people to really learn how to worship him. He wanted his people to learn how God worked. That's what God was trying to show them with all those things. He also wanted his people to learn how God was leading them into his rest, into a place where they could know him and and find rest in him. But look at what Paul says. All that Old Testament food stuff and celebration stuff, those were just a shadow of, of things to come, a shadow of Jesus when Jesus came on the scene, he, he, he kind of put an end to all that stuff. He showed them why that stuff's no longer necessary. He made all food clean. So he completely abolished the dietary laws in Mark 7, verse 18 to 20. Jesus also fulfilled the feasts and the celebrations and the Sabbath. We're to, we don't need those anymore because now we worship God on the Lord's day, on the first day day of the week. So those Old Testament things are just not important anymore. It comes to food, like just trying to help you think about this. It doesn't mean that there isn't some wisdom in being careful what we eat. It's not a a green light for the the elf diet, you know, the four food groups of candy, candy corn, candy canes, and syrup. Like that's not a good idea. You shouldn't do that. It's not what Paul's saying here, but what he is trying to help us understand is that we, we're not 
a, a, a better Christian or a worse Christian based off what we're eating or not eating. We don't judge others or allow people to judge us based off of what we're eating. French toast for breakfast is fine. Bacon with extra bacon is fine. Kale milkshake is gross, but fine. Like, that's just not what we're supposed to do. All food is clean. All food is declared good by God. And we don't need the calendar of feasts and celebrations and all these things to direct us back to God. Why? Because we have church every Sunday. Once a week, we're gathering as God's people on the Lord's day to worship him, to have our hearts drawn back to him. We don't need all the things that God used to do. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. So what in the world does all that mean for us? What does this have to do with a junior hire who lives in 2021? Even for a young Christian... Doing extra godly things is still a temptation to make us think that we actually are extra godly. I'm going to say that again. Doing extra godly things still tempts us to think that maybe we are extra godly. That we're better Christians, that we're more spiritual if we do things that appear more godly. But the reality is, If those things are not found in God's word, they are only a preference. And here's what I mean by that. Here's the deal. God wants us to obey him. God wants us to pray to him. God wants us to read his word. God wants us to live holy as he is holy. And how people think about that, how people process that might and will look differently across the board. Some people are going to take some of those and they're going to have preferences about them. Someone might actually easily turn one of those into something, believing like it's something God has said when it's something he actually hasn't said. Their preference becomes a rule. It becomes a law for them and for their life. And they try to put it on equal footing with this and they start to judge you by that. Example, for that person, reading God's word for at least an hour is the only thing that could possibly count for actually being in God's word. A minimum of 60 minutes. That's a preference. And yet that person becomes so driven by that and directed by that that they start to judge other people based on their preference. You were only in the word for 25 minutes? (laughs) How dare you? And they start to judge you and they start to hold you to their standard, their preference. If you're not doing what God's word tells us to do, if if you're doing something outside of what God's word tells us to do, and you're holding others to that preference, that standard, it's called legalism. It's called legalism. We're emphasizing man's rules, not God's rules. It's holding someone to your standards, not actually what God says. So 
You might not agree with the way someone dresses. You don't like the way, the the kind of clothes that they wear. You might think it's wrong. You, You might not agree with the way someone takes notes or doesn't take notes. You might be twice as far along in your Bible reading plan as the person next to you. You might not like the way they comb their hair. I don't know. Or the genre of music they listen to. Whatever it is, you might find it offensive to your preferences. But if they're not violating God's word in some specific way, listen, it's a preference. It's an opinion. It is not God's word. And we have no right to judge others or be judged by preferences. It's incredibly freeing. All that matters is my conscience before the Lord. When you live under a a reign of legalism, there's an absence of joy and there's also definitely shallow faith. Not actually caring what this says. I just am trying to inflict my preferences on everybody. So important that we hold tight to God's word. Warning number two. A warning against another huge word, asceticism. I can barely spell that thing. What does that mean? This is Pastor Jay's best attempt. Ungodly, unbiblical, excessive self-discipline. Okay? Those first three words describe the kind of self-discipline we're talking about. It's ungodly, it's unbiblical, and it's excessive. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head. We know that's Jesus from a few verses before, from whom the whole body, we know that's the church from a few verses before, which Jesus nourishes and keeps together, and it grows with the growth that's from God. Here now, Paul focuses on this kind of self-discipline, the self-humiliation. It's an attempt to be so overly humble in your approach to God that you reject things that God says is good and right. Again, unbiblical, ungodly, excessive. And it's all of it's this attempt to grow closer to the Lord that's not right. Some people believe that the more that they suffer, the more God will be pleased with them. Some have approached this by rejecting so many things that God says is, is good, and, and then he tells us in his word are for our good. Um, they refuse to enjoy these gifts from God, things like marriage or children. They avoid those things. Some even hurt themselves, try to inflict pain on themselves, a disrespect for their own body being made in God's image, thinking that somehow God's going to say, that a boy. That's not what it is. Paul says, don't let anyone look at it, disqualify you, or you could think of it this way, defraud you by convincing you that this is somehow the right thing, that your self-humiliation, making yourself excessively low, is pleasing God. 
Here Paul seems to make a reference to this kind of behavior in connection to worship of angels. And it makes us go, what? And it should because it's not what we're supposed to do. And my best guess is that there's some kind of teaching there that promotes humility to the point where these people were like, hey, look, we're low and we're sinful and God's high and holy. We should never pray to him directly. Let's take our prayers to angels and let them run it up the flagpole to the big guy. Like that's so strange and not what we should do. It's not what we should do. God tells us to pray directly to him. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We're to run to God. We're to boldly approach his throne, confident that he's our father and we are his daughter or his son. We belong to him as his child and we have every right to go to him in time of need. Philippians 4.6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to who? To God, not to angels. You pray directly to God. Paul says that approach of, of, of just tweaking how things are supposed to go because of some kind of self-humility, it condemns you. It's disqualifying. It's not the way God wants it to be. And worst of all, he says, you're not holding fast to the head of the church, to Christ. You're cutting yourself off from the one who can actually help you grow in your faith. The source of growth is Jesus. And when you're, you're, you're so desperate to grow and be more spiritual, and it's so ironic because you're doing the opposite thing. You're separating yourself from the source of growth. I love Paul because he's not afraid to kind of hide his feelings. He says, those teachers are puffed up in their mind. That was mad shade back in the day. Puffed up in their mind. They believe that their super humility gave them super Christian visions and all this stuff. They're promoting that this is the way to live. This was the way to experience more of God, more fullness of God. But we know that's not true. John chapter 15, Jesus says, abide in me. You, you, you stay connected to me and I'll stay connected to you. When we think about that word abide, we just know that it, it, it directly tells us that this is how we do that. It's through God's word that we stay grounded in and connected and tethered to Christ. We stay uh, like, like links in a chain with Jesus by daily being in his word, constantly staying connected to Christ through his word. As we Think about what this might look like for us, like asceticism for a junior hire. I can only begin to think about all the possible versions that that might show up, but I, I don't, rather than that, I just want to emphasize the, this main point of we have to stay connected to the word. It's so important to know the word so that we can distinguish what's true and what's false. Rather than try to identify all those things, young people, listen, if you do not find it here, you have no reason to consider it. If you can't find that in God's word, either by yourself or with the help of your parents or your small group leader or, my, or me, we, we want to help you find If it's not here, it's not true. We may be convinced that something is right, but if we can't find it in the Bible, 
we know that it's not something God wants for us. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture, the Bible, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training, for correction and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, that the man of God or woman of God will be complete for all that he or she needs. What does that tell us? Everything we need is right here. Everything you need is right here. You don't need any other source. God made sure that you had it all right here. You may think you're growing closer to God by trying to stay up all night in prayer or to not sleep until you've memorized Psalm 119 or or whatever. But listen, if you're doing those things thinking that you're earning favor with God, or somehow that God's going to be more pleased with you, that God might somehow reveal more truth to you or some kind of higher level of knowledge, you you are so mistaken. You are so mistaken. Paul says it's all a waste. He says there's no value in it. And that's really just what the rest of this passage is saying. It's It's kind of Paul's concluding words of everything that he's just talked about in verses 20 to 23, this just sort of conclusion. If with Christ you died is a familial... familial, that's so funny, familiar phrase that he'll use to start chapter three. Here he says, if you've you've died with Christ, and there he'll say, if you've been raised with Christ, he's just trying to help us understand that this is for the Christian. All these practices and experiences that man will promote and claim are so valuable. Paul says, they're worthless. If it's not here, it's worthless. It's not actually help you. It may seem right or wise, like it's going to help you grow, but in the end, it's not going to help you grow. And notice how he ends. It's not going to help one bit to stop the indulgence of your sinfulness. You think this is going to help you? It's not. This is what's going to help you. God's word. So we need Christ and we need his word to do that. A strong strong tornado warning like warning here for Christians. This isn't something to just kind of, maybe I will, maybe I won't. This is a massive warning for us, for believers to not get caught up in the things of man. If you really want to grow, then stay connected to Christ These are the kinds of things we leave behind when we're saved, when we repent of our sin, when we put our faith in the gospel. If you died with Christ, then then the stuff of the world is not for you. The stuff of his word is what we need the most. That's where we grow. That's where we learn. That's where we learn to stop being so tempted by sin and to start to grow in our faith in Christ. Those things that I know genuinely bug many of you that that you struggle with and you think, what is the deal with this sin thing? We need Christ. We desperately need to stay connected to him and his word. Everything else, empty. Anything outside of this, just quoting Paul. It's a waste of time. 
Father, thank you for your word tonight that helps us understand the dangers in our world, that directs us away from it, that, that keeps us connected to you. Father, you tell us our hearts are so untrustworthy in that we need you and we need your help to know how to live. Thank you for this text. Pray that you'd help us to see how without you, we're, we're, we're helpless to know what's right and wrong. Without your word, we, we can't know what's true and what's a lie. Praise you for the truth of your word and its power to lead us to salvation and then to live lives that honor you. Thank you for these young students, Lord, these junior hires. I pray that your word would stick with them tonight and the rest of this week that they'd think about just how close they are to your word or maybe how distant they are. I pray that you'd lead them and God, just help them to be convicted of of changes that they need to make, especially those who are keeping you at a distance, especially those students who, who are resistant and hesitant to your gospel. Father, I pray that you would use a message like this and that you'd use your word to save many of these students. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.